This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Keeping with a long-established tradition here at Radio Parallax, because this is our final show prior to Christmas, we're going to play our own choice of Christmas music. Yes, we find ourselves unable to resist the Barking Dogs version of Jingle Bells. We hope you will all get through this holiday season with a minimum of stress and a maximum of pleasure. It is our great pleasure to note that For the majority of today's program, we will air our interview conducted a few days back with investigative journalist Jefferson Morley about his great new book, The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton. Some of you may know Angleton as James Jesus Angleton, but we are aware of the fact that his mother was Mexican, thus we are going to use the Mexican pronunciation. Now, in all seriousness, this is a great interview. We're pleased to be able to bring it to you. And it lasts about 45 minutes. Therefore, we are going to go into it halfway through this first segment and run it to the end of the program. Since that promises to be rather stern stuff, I think for the first 15 minutes of today's program, we're going to keep it light. We do feel a responsibility this Christmas to do our own version of investigative journalism and expose for you, dear listener, the myth of the American yam. Perhaps you're planning to eat some yams this holiday season, either at home or at a restaurant. We feel it is our duty to inform you that you, in fact, did not consume a yam. Yes, they're shipped around the country in boxes labeled yams, but the truth is, most Americans have never eaten a real yam. Real yams originate in and are now commonly grown in Africa. If it's produced and sold in the United States as a yam, it is really a sweet potato. The two aren't even very closely related, biologically speaking. Sacramento, we reported on this some weeks back that some people find this to be a real sore spot. They quoted UC Davis librarian J.J. Harbster as saying, Yams were my favorite food growing up until I discovered it was not the yam that I loved. It was the sweet potato. It's bothered her for many years. As a researcher, this revelation inspired her to learn as much as she could, even authoring a piece for the Library of Congress on the issue. And here's the backstory, according to J.J. Harbster. When sweet potatoes were first brought from the Americas to Europe by Columbus... Someone thought it wise to add the word sweet to the term, apparently to differentiate them from the more usual potato. Evidently, centuries later, people want to differentiate the two main types, soft orange flesh versus firm lighter flesh, so they borrowed a word brought over by African slaves. Slaves recognized that root or tuber that looked very much like the yams they knew in Africa, so they called them yams, and marketers just ran with it. According to Harbster, African yams may look a bit like sweet potatoes, but genetically and in the kitchen, they're nothing alike. 
Evidently, the California sweet potato industry is trying to quash this mismarketing. Turns out that nearly all the sweet potatoes commercially grown west of the Mississippi are farmed in the San Joaquin Valley, and most are found in Merced County. The paper reported that down in Livingston, thousands of red-skinned, orange-fleshed sweet potatoes move past workers who pack them in boxes labeled quality yams slash sweet potatoes. Reportedly, this is the end of an era. Apparently, the next wave of boxes will simply say sweet potato. And now you know the rest of the story. We would like to forward promote that for next week's program, we will air our interview with Gary Tobbs. His book, The Case for Sugar, is a fascinating study of the, shall we say, health hazards of our over-reliance on sugar in Western diets, how this clearly leads to obesity and diabetes and heart disease and other health problems, even though, I hate to say it, the medical community does not appear to be up to speed on this, in no small part thanks to the PR and lavish spending by the sugar industry. You'll want to hear this one. We're also going to see what we can do in 2018 to bring back author Sam Keen. Sam has spoken to us about each of his three previous books, The the Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons, The Violinist's Thumb, and The Disappearing Spoon. His latest book, Caesar's Last Breath, Decoding the Secrets of the Air Around Us, is, in my opinion, his very best. We hope you'll be kind enough to speak with us about it early next year. I was quite taken by the fact that Mr. Keene attempts to talk about virtually every gas in the Earth's atmosphere at some point or another, and he does so in his usual entertaining way. But I was struck by the stats on his very first chapter describing a couple of gases in the atmosphere and describing their concentration. Hydrogen sulfide gas, that rotten egg smell you notice when you're in volcanic areas near geysers and the like, apparently in our atmosphere weighs in at five parts per trillion. I think you'd have to agree that that's a pretty low concentration. So I would ask you, dear listener, to guess how many molecules of hydrogen sulfide you inhale every time you take a breath. Yes, at five parts per trillion. Well, Believe it or not, molecules are so small, and there are so many of them in a breath of air, that each time you breathe, you inhale 60 billion molecules of hydrogen sulfide. Now, it is a deadly poison. You'd be inclined to think that 60 billion molecules of it ought to do you in, but you'd be wrong. That's only five parts per trillion, and it isn't enough to do us any harm. Imagine. You know, I seem to vaguely recall from medical school days that, uh, that the human nose was the most sensitive known detector of hydrogen sulfide gas. I believe we can detect it at concentrations much, much less than one part per million, something like one part per billion. Anyway, we hope we get a chance to ask Sam Keen about some of those numbers on the show sometime soon. I think we have to report on one of the dumbest science stories we've come across in quite a while. Apparently this interstellar object, which is currently whizzing through our solar system. We know that it's interstellar because of the speed at which it buzzed the sun and the planets of late. It's going so fast that it will not be captured by the sun's gravity. Meaning this is apparently a one-time visit. It's coming in and it's going out. Now this is a now this is to be sure a very interesting object. Uh, I think Elon Musk and others have talked about getting a rocket which they haven't even got off the drawing board yet but which they believe could be built and sent out to intercept this object somewhere at the range of the outer planets. I hope they do this. A lot will will be learned by uh, paying this object a visit. But uh, there's something about this uh, this space rock, which 
which has really got some imaginations uh, into overdrive. Now, apparently someone decided the designation 1I2017U1 didn't have much of a ring to it, so they decided to bestow upon it a Hawaiian name. After all, it was discovered by an observatory in the Hawaiian Islands. So they've called it Oumuamua, and apparently Oumuamua has inspired some people to ask, well, what if it's not an asteroid at all? What if it's a crippled spaceship? Now, admittedly, this object is cigar-shaped. It's believed to be 180 meters long, but only 30 meters wide. And that does make it more elongated than just about anything known in our own solar system. But, A, this thing isn't from our own solar system. Since it's the first object we've seen from interstellar space, we have no idea what is normal for objects in interstellar space. This has got some people saying, well, you know, such a shape would be sensible for a spaceship. It would minimize the scouring effect of interstellar dust. And thus has been born the Breakthrough Listen Project, an organization dedicated to hunting for alien life. It plans to turn the world's biggest steerable radio telescope, that's the Green Bank Instrument in Virginia, toward Waumuamua to see if it can hear anything interesting. Currently, it's about twice as far from Earth as the Earth is from the Sun, and at that range, this telescope should be sensitive enough to pick up a transmitter about as powerful as a mobile phone after just a few seconds worth of observation. The Economist magazine asked, will it find anything? To which it replied to its own question, almost certainly not. It does have the typical reddish color seen in more conventional asteroids, so it's presumed to have a similar composition. People have noted that if it really was a spaceship, it was odd that signs of its artificial origin had not already been seen. And it is also odd that it is tumbling. Of course, that that could be that it's a crippled spacecraft. That's why it's tumbling out of control. So far, nobody's invoked cloaking devices and tractor beams, but it's probably only a matter of time. Mr. McMillan, Mr. McMillan does suggest that no matter what, they do not try to mix matter and antimatter cold. Something Mr. Scott of the Starship Enterprise would never attempt. Anyway, pretty dumb thing to get worked up about. But I suppose there's dumber things. Oh, by the way, in Sam Keen's book, Caesar's Last Breath, Decoding the Secrets of the Air Around Us, he has a very credible explanation for what happened in Roswell, New Mexico back in 1947. And no, it in fact did not involve alien spacecraft. Although it is undeniable that in probably the world's worst cover story, the Air Force at first claimed that it had captured a flying saucer, something it was quick to retract. The real story, just to summarize in less than a paragraph, is that um, a secret Air Force project was trying to spy on the Russians. It was called Project Mogul, and they would use an array of balloons with equipment attached to it to go up to a layer about 45,000 feet above the Earth's surface, where sound tends to conduct extremely well. They were trying to listen in to potential Soviet nuclear tests. After withdrawing their story about the captured UFO, the Air Force tried to insist it was all a weather balloon, which nobody was buying. Said Sam Keane, apparently the threat of the Soviet Union loomed so large in their imaginations that the Air Force preferred to let rumors about alien invasion fester rather than tip off the Soviets to even a failed attempt to spy on them. Once again, now you know the rest of the story. And uh, speaking of spying, as I guess we just were, 
Let us move into our discussion of The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton. Our guest today, author Jefferson Morley, began writing about James Angleton of the CIA in 2015. Angleton, you should know, had a surprisingly large role to play in many secret actions that took place during the Cold War, which resonates still. From its earliest days, the Central Intelligence Agency was a powerful force directing clandestine operations around the world. James Angleton would, from 1947 till his forced retirement in 1974, wield enormous influence within the agency. Given that Angleton operated in a world of tightly held secrets, any attempted biography will have more than the usual number of problems accessing data. Luckily for all of us, Jefferson Morley applied his skills as an investigative journalist to the task, using archival material, released secret documents, and interviews with those who knew him. Mr. Morley's worked in Washington for 30 years, 15 of which were spent at the Washington Post. He has written about intelligence, military, and political subjects for The Intercept, Salon, The Atlantic, and others. His previous book, titled Our Man in Mexico, concerned Winston Scott, the CIA's station chief in Mexico City. This is a book which we highly recommend to you. But our subject volume today is the even more provocative, The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Angleton. National Book Award winner Tim Weiner had this to say about it. The best book ever written about the strangest CIA chief who ever lived. No screenwriter or novelist could conjure a character like Angleton. But Morley's stellar reporting and superb writing animate every page of this work. It's essential history and highly entertaining biography. Given that I had a copy shipped to me the day it was available, I can happily second Mr. Weiner's view of it, and I'm delighted to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Jefferson Morley. Thanks for having me, Doug. James Angleton showed up in your book about Wynne Scott as a rather mysterious figure manipulating the flow of information going to and coming from Mexico City in 1963. Did that episode jumpstart an interest in writing about Mr. Angleton? Yeah, it did. James Angleton and Wynne Scott were the same generation of the CIA guys who came into intelligence work via the Office of Strategic Services during World War II, became enthralled with intelligence work and joined the CIA when it opened in 1947, and then served in the CIA for 25 years. So the careers of these two men were intertwined, and indeed for a lot of that time, Angleton and Scott were friends. So I knew a lot about Angleton after I had finished the book. The thing that I didn't quite realize was how much more had come into the public record since I wrote Our Man in Mexico in the early 2000s. When I got the contract for the Angleton book in, in, in 2015, I realized there was this huge body of material about things that had really not been written about by Angleton's other biographers, specifically Angleton's role in the JFK assassination story, but other things as well. So by the time I got around to writing this book, there was lots of material that had not really been used by other authors. So there was lots of good stories to tell, and The Ghost is the result, a compilation of those good stories. Well, back in 1952, Dwight Eisenhower became president. He appointed Alan Dulles as head of the CIA, who, who uh, Angleton knew from his OSS days. Angleton convinces Dulles personally to give him some extraordinary access to materials as a head of counterintelligence. Uh, can you outline what a remarkable niche Angleton carved out for himself, which you've kind of described as a CIA within the CIA? In the early 1950s, Angleton was a certainly a highly regarded officer, and he had good relationships with Alan Dulles, who he had known. But he was not, by any means, first among equals at the CIA. 
But in 1954, he had the idea that CIA operations were insecure, that the KGB was much more efficient at infiltrating the CIA and U.S. institutions than people had appreciated. And he said the CIA, what this agency needed was a counterintelligence staff to ferret out threats to internal CIA security. The CIA didn't have any centralized counterintelligence function. They had counterintelligence officers working on specific operations, but nobody overseeing the whole area of counterintelligence. So Angleton created this job, thought it up, and persuaded Dulles to do it. And so that became his platform for amassing a great deal of power. The counterintelligence staff was created in 1954. Um, it had basically, in Angleton's original conception, about four offices within it. So it started as a relatively small operation. By 1958-59, the counterintelligence staff had 200 people working for it, all under Angleton's control. Half of those were officers and agents. Half of those were clerical people. But this was the, the heart of Angleton's operation, which he used from 54 to 74 to amass a great deal of power in all sorts of areas, like you said, that went far beyond counterintelligence. So he really used this job that he thought of to fill his own intelligence ambitions. It's been noted that we live in something of a surveillance state these days, the revelations about the NSA and other things. Back in the 50s, Angleton allied himself with J. Edgar Hoover to sort of forge a relationship between the CIA and FBI to basically spy on Americans. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this is one of the interesting stories that was in the public record but had not been appreciated. In 1958, J. Edgar Hoover wanted to expand what he called the COINTELPRO program. Uh, and COINTELPRO was a counterintelligence program which had been used by the FBI to attack, discredit perceived enemies of America. And the program had been created during World War II to take on pro-German organizations in the United States. Hoover revived this in the late 1950s to go after communists in the United States. Um, and one thing that he wanted to do was he wanted to open up the mail of communists, but he was uncertain about how to go about doing this. So started making inquiries. And when he did, Angleton got wind of this. Angleton was the CIA's liaison to the FBI. And Angleton approached him and said, by the way, we're already opening people's mail. <laughs> and that was a program that Angleton had, had created not long after he created the counterintelligence staff called Lingual. And Lingual was a program to open up all the foreign mail of selected people. So this was mail from the United States to overseas or from overseas into the United States. And Angleton created the capacity to open letters. Again, like the counterintelligence staff, grows very rapidly. When Angleton first gets control of the program in 55, they're opening 100 letters a year. Within five years, they're opening 10,000 letters a year. So Angleton took this thing to scale, as he so often did, and... That became the basis for Hoover's expansion of the COINTELPRO program. Hoover was very concerned about this, and one of his aides said, you know, they thought all hell was going to break loose because, wow, the CIA was spying on Americans, and the CIA was poaching on FBI turf. Right. Well, Angleton cleverly put the thing together, and Hoover, always hungry for more secrets, welcomed Angleton's gift of, the, of intelligence. So. Angleton created a program called Hunter, and what Hunter was was fed all of the lingual 
letters, any letters that, that the FBI wanted were funneled to them. So the FBI could then levy their requirements on Angleton's intelligence collection. And so COINTELPRO grew in part because it was fed by Angleton's intelligence. COINTELPRO was always a joint program of those two agencies. It was not just a Hoover specialty. It was a Hoover-Angleton program. And so that's new. When we, when we talk about COINTELPRO, we always talk about the FBI. And it's true that their focus was domestic intelligence agencies, but they were always fed with CIA intelligence as well. So you can't take Angleton out of the COINTELPRO picture. Well, let's take another look at back at the 1950s. There's a, there's a very small subplot in the book, which is probably not worth spending a great deal of time on, but it really struck me. You mentioned how Angleton befriended Jay Lovestone, a former Communist Labor Party leader. He got money from the CIA and, and contacts, and soon he and Angleton pretty much control what U.S. labor unions have to say about American foreign policy, which Absolutely. is something I think surprises people how much influence they gain by infiltration. Yes, and it's not a small subplot. It was It was a major part of of Angleton's empire was that he could count on the support of the AFL-CIO's, you know, foreign policy unit, the AFL-CIO's relations with any other labor unions around the world. And so the, the AFL-CIO became very much became the instrument of U.S. policy, completely unknown to its members. And this was driven by Angleton's close friendship with Jay Lovestone. When, Jay Lovestone lived in New York, but he came to Washington frequently in the 1950s. And when he did, he would spend the night at Angleton's house. He was friends with Angleton's kids. He was very close to Angleton, and this ensured CIA influence over the AFL-CIO. Well, in 1959, a young ex-Marine defects to the USSR. His name was Lee Harvey Oswald. Angleton's counterintelligence staff immediately gets involved in this matter. You note, and others have noted, that Oswald should have had a personnel file open on him as a defector. Instead, Angleton's Office of Security opens a rather more restricted file on him, and right up to the JFK assassination, Angleton was informed of Oswald's activity. This took you and others a great deal of effort to uncover, as this has been hidden for years, but it's quite a revelation. Yeah. I think this is probably the biggest and most important thing in the, in the ghost, is the story of the surveillance of Oswald from 1959 to 1963. The JFK assassination story is contested in every area and all that, but the paper trail shows very clearly, this is not a theory or open to interpretation, is the CIA was definitely paying close attention to Lee Harvey Oswald starting in October 1959 and continuing for the next four years. And when I say paying close attention to, we need to understand what this paper trail tells us, which is all information about this obscure young man, Lee Harvey Oswald over the course of four years, was funneled into one place, an office within the counterintelligence staff called the Special Investigations Group. So it wasn't, there was no failure to connect the dots on Oswald. All of the dots were in one place. They were in a file controlled by Angleton's staff. And, and over the course of four years, there was quite a bit of information in there, probably between 40 to 50 documents, FBI reports, CIA memoranda, CIA analysis, State Department, Office of Naval Intelligence, and newspaper clipping. And so wherever Oswald went in that time, the CIA was informed very quickly, where was he living, 
what was going on in his personal life, what was going on with his employment, what was going on with his politics, what was going on with his con- possible contacts with foreigners. So the story that the American people were told on November 23rd that this guy named Oswald came out of nowhere and shot the president, that is fundamentally and irrefutably a lie. Oswald was not unknown to top CIA operations officers, including James Engelman. To the contrary, he was very well known. So that's quite apart from any interpretation of was there a conspiracy or not. That's a fact that is very well established in the ghost. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad to say that it's not being disputed by the people who read it because the paper trail is so strong, is so clear that that was the case. Well, I have to, at this point, insert my, my single favorite quote from The Ghost, which was, if Oswald was a lone nut, as cliche would have it, he was the rare, isolated sociopath of interest to the CIA's counterintelligence staff. Absolutely, absolutely. This story that this guy came out of nowhere, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Now, it didn't make any sense to people at the time because people thought, well, he defected to the Soviet Union. Wouldn't the CIA be interested in that? And so the CIA sort of played dumb, and they got a pass from the press corps on this. Oh, yeah, he defected, but we didn't really know anything about him. No. <laughs> that is completely and absolutely false. Yeah. And, and, and anybody who looks at the record now knows it. You know, you can just say what you want about the assassination after that, but what I'm saying about the surveillance of Oswald is a fact. Well, let, let's delve into that a little bit. In, in fall of 63, Oswald apparently goes to Mexico City, and uh, the chief of station there, Wynne Scott, the subject of your previous biography, reports on the visit and requests the latest info on Oswald. Angleton's office deliberately sends misleading data back to Scott. Does that not raise questions of whether Angleton was actually manipulating Oswald's activities? Yeah, well, you know, um, it's very curious that uh, the top official in the CIA would be sending uh, a cable about a future presidential assassin that was completely erroneous and contradicted by information that he had in his office at the time. So I don't have a good explanation of why he was doing that. Angleton operated at very devious levels, and I I, I didn't want to speculate about it. But yeah, you know, Oswald shows up in Mexico City. He talks to the Cubans. He talks to the Soviets. Angleton knows that all the diplomatic officials in those, in those offices are presumed to be intelligence officers, and indeed most of them were. He knows that Oswald was arrested in New Orleans for fighting with a CIA-funded Cubans. In the FBI reports, the FBI said that he beat his wife. So when Angleton gets notified that Oswald's in Mexico City, he could have turned around and told Wynn Scott, look, this guy is an open leftist. He's working for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which had been listed as a subversive organization by the Justice Department. He beats his wife. He's gotten arrested. Now he showed up in Mexico City, and he's making contact with presumed Cuban and, and, and Russian intelligence agencies. And, you know, therefore, like, if you hear more about him, tell me about that or whatever. He could have sent a very strong message. And instead, he sends a message saying, don't worry about this guy. His time in the Soviet Union had a maturing effect on him. <laughs> and so Wynne Scott believes this, right? He has no reason to think that mm-hmm. headquarters is, is deceiving him. So he says, you know, he, he makes various other requests. He's trying to find out more information about Oswald. Angleton didn't tell Wynne Scott. He could have turned around and told the FBI in 
in Dallas and New Orleans. And one other thing that I point out in The Ghost, which is new and, and was not previously known, was Angleton received an FBI report in November 1963 saying that Oswald had returned from Mexico City and had gone to Dallas. So Angleton knew that Oswald was in Dallas a week before the assassination. That's pretty clear from the paper trail that we now have. That's another thing that is unexplained about his response to Lee Harvey Oswald. But what we know for sure is he had plenty of information, of sort of warning signs about Oswald, and he did not share them with anybody. To the contrary, he shared false information or erroneous information with his own colleagues about Oswald. So that's very clear that he did that. Now, the question is, was he doing that to conceal an operation? You know, and I think that's possible. That could be, you know, if there's some circumstantial evidence. I didn't write that because I'm not sure of that, you know, and, and, and we don't know. But we do know that Angleton was watching Oswald very carefully for four years before JFK was killed. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM. Let's take a short break.